0: Part Five of Last Enemy by H. Beam Piper, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Last Enemy, Part Five. They pushed the door wide open and went out past the cabinet, hugging the wall. They began a slow circuit of the well. Verkan Vall in the lead with a submachine gun, then Sarnax and Deersid. The former with a heavy boar rifle, and the latter with a hunting pistol in each hand. And Hadran Dalla brought up the rear with her rifle. It was she who noticed a movement along the rim of the balcony above and snapped a shot at it. There was a crash above and a shower of glass and plastic and metal fragments rattled on the pavement of the court. Somebody had been trying to lower a scanner or a visiplate pickup or something of the sort. The exact nature of the instrument was not evident from the wreckage. Dalla's bullet had made of it. The rooms Dirzit and Sarnax entered were all quiet. Nobody seemed to be attempting to cut through the ceiling—fifteen feet above. They dragged furniture from a couple of rooms, blocking the openings of the lifter tubes, and continued around the well until they had reached the gun-room again. had suggested that they move some of the weapons and ammunition stored there to Prince Dirzen's private apartment, halfway around to the lifter tubes, so that another place of refuge would be stocked with munitions in event of their being driven from the gun-room. Leaving him on guard outside, Verkan Vall, Dalla, and Sarnax entered the gunroom and began gathering weapons and boxes of ammunition. Dalla finished packing her game-bag with the recorded data and notes of her experiments. Verkan Vall selected four more of the heavy hunting pistols, more accurate than his shoulder-holster weapon or the dead Olierzon's belt-arm, and capable of either full or semi-automatic fire. Sarnax chose a couple more boar rifles. Dalla slung her bag of recorded notes, and another bag of ammunition, and secured another deer rifle. They carried this accumulation of munitions to the private apartments of Prince Jerzin, dumping everything in the middle of the drawing-room, except the bag of notes, from which Dalla refused to separate herself. "'Maybe we'd better put some stuff over in one of the rooms on the other side of the well,' Deerzit suggested. "'They haven't really begun to come after us. When they do, we'll probably be attacked from two or three directions at once. They returned to the gunroom, casting anxious glances at the edge of the balcony above and at the barricade they had erected across the openings to the lifter tubes. Verkan Vall was not satisfied with this last. It looked to him as though they had provided a breastwork for somebody to fire on them from, more than anything else. He was about to step around the cabinet, which partially blocked the gunroom door, when he glanced up and saw a six-foot circle on the ceiling turning slowly brown. There was a smell of scorched plastic. He grabbed Sarnax by the arm and pointed. Thermite, the assassin whispered. The ceiling's got six inches of spaceship insulation between it and the floor above. It'll take them a few minutes to burn through it. He stooped and pushed on the barricade, shoving it into the room. Keep back. They'll probably drop a grenade or so through first, before they jump down. If we're quick, we can get a couple of them." Deerzet and Sarnax crouched, one at either side of the door, with weapons ready. Verkan Vall and Dalla had been ordered, rather peremptorily, to stay behind them. In a place of danger, an assassin was obliged to shield his client. Verkan Vall, unable to see what was going on inside the room, kept his eyes and his gun muzzle on the barricade across the openings to the lifter tubes, the erection of which he was now regretting as a major tactical error. Inside the gun-room there was a sudden crash, as the circle of thermite burned through and a section of ceiling dropped out and hit the floor. Instantly, Deers had flung himself back against Verkan Vall, and there was a tremendous explosion inside, followed by another and another. A second or so passed, then Deersid, leaning around the corner of the door, began firing rapidly into the room. From the other side of the door, Sarnax began blazing away with his rifle. Verkan Vall kept his position, covering the lifter tubes. Suddenly, from behind the barricade, a blue-white gun-flash leaped into being and a pistol banged. He sprayed the opening between a couch and a section of bookcase from whence it had come, releasing his trigger as the gun rose with the recoil, squeezing and releasing and squeezing again. Then he jumped to his feet. "'Come on, the other place! Hurry!' he ordered. Sarnax swore in exasperation. "'Help me with her, Dirzid!' he implored. Verkan Vall turned his head to see the two assassins drag Dalla to her feet and hustle her away from the gunroom. She was quite senseless, and they had to drag her between them. Verkan Vall gave a quick glance into the gun-room. Two of the Starfa servants and a man in a rather flashy civil dress were lying on the floor, where they had been shot as they had jumped down from above. He saw a movement at the edge of the irregular smoking hole in the ceiling and gave it a short burst, then fired another at the exit from the descent tube. Then he took to his heels and followed the assassins and Hadron Dalla into Prince Jirzin's apartment. As he ran through the open door, the assassins were letting Dalla down into a chair. They instantly threw themselves into the work of barricading the doorway so as to provide cover and at the same time allow them to fire out into the central well. For an instant, as he bent over her, he thought Dalla had been killed an assumption justified by his knowledge of the deadliness of a neb bullets. Then he saw her eyelids flicker. A moment later, he had the explanation of her escape. The bullet had hit the game-bag at her side. It was full of spools of metal tape in metal cases, and notes in written form, pyrographed upon sheets of plastic ring fastened into metal binders. Because of their extreme velocity, Acord Neb bullets were sure killers when they struck animal tissue, but for the same reason they had very poor penetration on hard objects. The alloy steel tape and the steel spools and spool cases and the notebook binders had been enough to shatter the little bullets into splinters of magnesium-nickel alloy, and the stout leather back of the game-bag had stopped all of these. But the impact, even distributed as it had been through the contents of the bag, had been enough to knock the girl unconscious. He found a bottle of some sort of brandy and a glass on a serving-table nearby, and poured her a drink, holding it to her lips. She spluttered over the first mouthful, then took the glass from him and sipped the rest. "'What happened?' she asked. "'I thought those bullets were sure death.' "'Your notes—the bullet hit the bag. Are you all right now?' She finished the brandy. I think so. She put a hand into the game-bag and brought out a snarled and tangled mess of steel tape. Oh, blast! That stuff was important! All the records on the preliminary auto-recall experiments! She shrugged. Well, it wouldn't have been worth much if I'd stopped that bullet myself. She slipped the strap over her shoulder and started to rise. As she did, a bedlam of firing broke out both from the two assassins at the door and from outside. They both hit the floor and crawled out of line of the partly open door. Verkan Vall recovered his submachine gun, which he had set down beside Dalla's chair. Sarnax was firing with his rifle at some target in the direction of the lifter tubes. Deersid lay slumped over the barricade, and one glance at his crumpled figure was enough to tell Verkan Vall that he was dead. You fill magazines for us," he told Dalla, then crawled to Deerzid's place at the door. What happened, Sarnax? They shoved over the barricade at the lifter tubes and came out into the well. I got a couple, they got Deerzid, and now they're holed up in rooms all around the circle. They—'Ah!' He fired three shots, quickly, around the edge of the door. That stopped that! The assassin crouched to insert a fresh magazine into his rifle. Vall risked one eye around the corner of the doorway, and as he did there was a red flash and a dull roar, unlike the blue flashes and sharp cracking reports of the pistols and rifles, from the doorway of the gunroom. He wondered for a split second if it might be one of the fouling pieces he had seen there, and then something whizzed past his head and exploded with a soft plop behind him. Turning, he saw a pool of gray vapor beginning to spread in the middle of the room. Dalla must have got a breath of it, for she was slumped over the chair from which she had just risen. Dropping the submachine gun and gulping a lungful of fresh air from outside, Birkenvall rushed to her, caught her by the heels, and dragged her into Prince Jirzen's bedroom beyond. Leaving her in the middle of the floor, he took another deep breath and returned to the drawing-room, where Sarnax was already overcome by the sleep-gas. He saw the serving-table from which he got the brandy and dragged it over to the bedroom door, overturning it and laying it across the doorway, its legs in the air. Like most Acord Neb serving-tables, it had a gravitation-counteraction unit under it. He set this for double minus gravitation and snapped it on. As it was now above the inverted table, the table did not rise, but a tendril of sleep-gas curling toward it bent upward and drifted away from the doorway. Satisfied that he had made a temporary barrier against the sleep gas, Verkan Vall secured Dalla's hunting pistol and spare magazines and laid down at the bedroom door. For some time there was silence outside. The besiegers evidently decided that the sleep gas attack had been a success. An assassin, wearing a gas mask and carrying a submachine gun, appeared in the doorway, and behind him came a tall man in a tan tunic, similarly masked. They stepped into the room and looked around. Knowing that he would be shooting over a two-hundred-percent negative gravitation field, Verkenval aimed for the assassin's belt-buckle and squeezed. The bullet caught him in the throat. Evidently, the bullet had not only been lifted in the negative gravitation, but lifted point first and deflected upward. He held his front sight just above the other man's knee and hit him in the chest. As he fired, he saw a wisp of gas come sliding around the edge of the inverted table. There was silence outside, and for an instant he was tempted to abandon his post and go to the bathroom, back of the bedroom, for wet towels to improvise a mask. Then, when he tried to crawl backward, he could not. There was an impression of distant shouting which turned into a roaring sound in his head. He tried to lift his pistol, but it slipped from his fingers. When consciousness returned, he was lying on his back and something cold and rubbery was pressing into his face. He raised his arms to fight off whatever it was, and opened his eyes, to find that he was staring directly at the red oval and winged bullet of the Society of Assassins. A hand caught his wrist as he reached for the small pistol under his arm. The pressure on his face eased. "'It's all right, Lord Verzil,' a voice came to him. "'Assassin's truce!' He nodded stupidly, and repeated the words. "'Assassin's truce. I won't shoot. What happened?' Then he sat up and looked around. Prince Jirzen's bedchamber was full of assassins. Dalla, recovering from her touch of sleep gas, was sitting groggily in a chair, while five or six of them fussed around her, getting in each other's way, handing her drinks, chafing her wrists, holding damp cloths on her brow. That was standard procedure, when any group of males thought Dalla needed any help. Another assassin, beside the bed, was putting away an oxygen mask outfit. And the assassin who had prevented Verkan Vall from drawing his pistol was his own follower, Marnik. And Klarnud, the assassin president, was sitting on the foot of the bed, smoking one of Prince Jerzen's monogrammed and crested cigarettes critically. Verkan Vall looked at Marnik, and then at Klarnud, and back to Marnik. "'You got through,' he said. "'Good work, Marnik. I thought they downed you.' "'They did. I had to crash land in the woods. I went about a mile on foot, and then I found a man and a woman and two children, hiding in one of these little log-rain shelters. They had an airboat, a good one. It seemed that rioting had broken out in the city unit where they lived, and they'd taken to the woods till things quieted down again. I offered them Assassins' protection if they'd take me to Assassins' Hall, and they did. By luck, I was in when Marnock arrived," Klarnu took over. We brought three boatloads of men, and came here at once. Just as we got here, two boatloads of Starfa dependents arrived. They tried to give us an argument, and we discarnated the lot of them. Then we came down here, crying assassins' truce. One of the Starfa assassins, Kirzal, was still carnate. He told us what had been going on. The President-General's face became grim. You know, I take a rather poor view of Prince Jerzyn's procedure in this matter, not to mention that of his underlings. I'll have to speak to him about this. Now, how about you and the Lady Delona? What do you intend doing?' "'We're getting out of here,' Verkan Vall said. "'I'd like air transport and protection as far as Gamma, to the establishment of the family of Zorda. Branend of Zorda has a private space-yacht. He'll get us to Venus.' Clarnood gave a sigh of obvious relief. "'I'll have you and the Lady Delona airborne and off for Gamma as soon as you wish,' he promised. "'I will, frankly, be delighted to see the last of both of you. The Lady Delona has started a fire here at Darsh that won't burn out in a half-century, and who knows what it may consume.' He was interrupted by a heaving shock that made the underground dome dwelling shake like a light airboat in turbulence. Even eighty feet under the ground they could hear a continued crashing roar. It was an appreciable interval before the sound and the shock ceased. For an instant there was silence, and then an excited bedlam of shouting broke from the assassins in the room. Clarnood's face was frozen in horror. "'That was a fission-bomb!' he exclaimed. "'The first one that has been exploded on this planet in hostility in a thousand years!' He turned to Verkan Vall. If you feel well enough to walk, Lord Verzel, come with us. I must see what's happened." They hurried from the room, and went streaming up the ascent-tube to the top of the dome. About forty miles away, to the south, Verkan Vall saw the sinister thing that he had seen on so many other timelines and in so many other paratime sectors—a great pillar of coloured fire-shot smoke, rising to a mushroom head fifty thousand feet above. "'Well, that's it,' Clarnute said sadly. "'That is civil war.' "'May I make a suggestion, Assassin-President?' Vall asked. "'I understand that Assassin's truce is binding even upon non-Assassins. Is that correct?' "'Well, not exactly. It's generally kept by such non-Assassins as want to remain in their present reincarnations, though.' "'That's what I meant.' Well, suppose you declare a general, planet-wide assassin's truce in this political war, and make the leaders of both parties responsible for keeping it. Publish lists of the top two or three thousand statisticalists and volitionalists, starting with Mirzak of Bashad and Prince Jirzin of Starfa, and inform them that they will be assassinated in order if the fighting doesn't cease." Well, a smile grew on Klarnut's face. Lord Vierzal, my thanks, a good suggestion. I'll try it, and furthermore, I'll withdraw all assassin protection permanently from anybody involved in political activity, and forbid any assassin to accept any retainer connected with political factionalism. It's about time our members stopped discarnating each other in these political squabbles. He pointed to the three airboats drawn up on the top of the dome speedy black craft, bearing the red oval and winged bullet. "'Take your choice, Lord Verzil. I'll lend you a couple of my men, and you'll be in Gamma in three hours.' He hooked fingers and clapped shoulders with Verkan Vall, bent over Dalla's hand. "'I still like you, Lord Verzil, and I have seldom met a more charming lady than you, Lady Delona. But I sincerely hope I never see either of you again.' The ship for Jergabar was driving north and west. At 70,000 feet, it was still daylight, but the world below was wrapping itself in darkness. In the big screens, which served in lieu of the windows which could never have withstood the pressure and friction heat of the ship's speed, the sun was sliding out of sight over the horizon to port. Verkan Vall and Dallas sat together, watching the blazing western sky—the sky of their own first-level timeline. I blame myself terribly, Vall. Dalla was saying. And I didn't mean any of them the least harm. All I was interested in was learning the facts. I know, that sounds like I didn't know it was loaded, but— It sounds to me like those fourth-level Europo-American sector physicists who are giving themselves guilt complexes because they designed an atomic bomb," Vall replied. All you were interested in was learning the facts. Well, as a scientist, That's all you're supposed to be interested in. You don't have to worry about any social or political implications. People have to learn to live with newly discovered facts. If they don't, they die of them. But, Val, that sounds dreadfully irresponsible. Does it? You're worrying about the results of your reincarnation memory recall discoveries, the shootings and riotings and the bombings we saw. He touched the pommel of Olyrzen's knife, which he still wore. You're no more guilty of that than the man who forged this blade is guilty of the death of Marnak of Barshad. If he'd never lived, I'd have killed Marnak with some other knife somebody else made. And what's more, you can't know the results of your discoveries. All you can see is a thin film of events on the surface of an immediate situation, so you can't say whether the long-term results will be beneficial or calamitous. Take this fourth-level Europo-American atomic bomb, for example. I choose that because we both know that sector. But I could think of a hundred other examples in other paratime areas. Those people, because of deforestation, bad agricultural methods, and general mismanagement, are eroding away their arable soil at an alarming rate. At the same time, they're breeding like rabbits. In other words, each successive generation has less and less food to divide among more and more people, and, for inherited traditional and superstitious reasons, they refuse to adopt any rational program of birth control and population limitation. But fortunately, they now have the atomic bomb, and they are developing radioactive poisons, weapons of mass effect and their racial, nationalistic, and ideological conflicts are rapidly reaching the explosion point. A series of all-out atomic wars is just what that sector needs, to bring their population down to their world's carrying capacity. In a century or so, the inventors of the atomic bomb will be hailed as the saviors of their species." "'But how about my work on the acor Neb sector?' Dalla asked. It seems that my memory-recall technique is more explosive than any fission-bomb. I've laid the train for a century-long reign of anarchy. I doubt that. I think Clarnood will take hold, now that he has committed himself to it. You know, in spite of his sanguinary profession, he's the nearest thing to a real man of goodwill I've found on that sector. And here's something else you haven't considered.' Our own first-level life expectancy is from four to five hundred years. That's the main reason why we've accomplished as much as we have. We have, individually, time to accomplish things. On the Acorn neb sector, a scientist or artist or scholar or statesman will grow senile and die before he's as old as either of us. But now, a young student of twenty or so can take one of your auto-recall treatments and immediately have available all the knowledge and experience gained in four or five previous lives. He can start where he left off in his last reincarnation. In other words, you've made those people time-benders, individually as well as racially. Isn't that worth the temporary discarnation of a lot of ward-healers and plug-uglies, or even a few decent types like Dirzid and O'Learson? If it isn't, I don't know what scales of values you're using." "'Val!' Dalla's eyes glowed with enthusiasm. "'I never thought of that. And you said, temporary discarnation. That's just what it is. Deersid and O'Learzen and the others aren't dead. They're just waiting, discarnate, between physical lives. You know, in the sacred writings of one of the Fourth-Level Peoples it is stated, "'Death is the last enemy.' By proving that death is just a cyclic condition of continued individual existence, these people have conquered their last enemy." "'Last enemy, but one,' Vall corrected. They still have one enemy to go—an enemy within themselves. Call it semantic confusion, or illogic, or incomprehension, or just plain stupidity." Like Klarnut stymied by verbal objections to something labeled political intervention. He'd never have consented to use the power of his society if he hadn't been shocked out of his inhibitions by that nuclear bomb. Or the Statisticalists, trying to create a classless order of society through a political program which would only result in universal servitude to an omnipotent government. Or the Volitionalist Nobles, trying to preserve their hereditary, feudal privileges. And now they can't even agree on a definition of the term hereditary. Might they not recover all the silly prejudices of their past lives, along with the knowledge and wisdom?" But I thought you said Dalla was puzzled, a little hurt. Verkan Vall's arm squeezed around her waist, and he laughed comfortingly. You see, any sort of result is possible, good or bad. So don't blame yourself in advance for something you can't possibly estimate." An idea occurred to him, and he straightened in the seat. "'Tell you what, if you people at Rogom Foundation can get the problem of discarnate paratime transposition licked by then, let's you and I go back to the Acor-Neb sector in about a hundred years and see what sort of a mess those people have made of things.' "'A hundred years! That would be year twenty-two of the next millennium. It's a date, Val. We'll do it. They bent to light their cigarettes together at his lighter. When they raised their heads again and got the flame glare out of their eyes, the sky was purple black, dusted with stars, and dead ahead, spilling up over the horizon, was a golden glow the lights of Jurgabar and home. The end of last enemy by H. Beam Piper.